Welcome to Season 7, Episode 3 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis and Kim Kessler. Now, I've been studying point of view and narrative device in preparation for my upcoming story grid beat on these topics, so be sure to be on the lookout for that later this year. And that's what I'm looking at this week in the context of The Great Gatsby, the novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald, published in 1925, which has been adapted multiple times. Today, in addition to the novel, we reference the 2013 film directed by Baz Luhrmann from a screenplay by Luhrmann and Craig Pierce. As always, this is an adult conversation, and you may hear some adult words. As I break down the story today, I want to mention that I'm focusing on the novel, so that's what I'm addressing in the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. Here's the beginning hook. Inclined to reserve all judgments, Nick Carraway moves to New York City from the Midwest, where he learns his cousin Daisy's marriage to Tom Buchanan is not a happy one, and he hears rumors of the mysterious man who lives in the mansion next to his bungalow. But when Tom takes him to a party in the city, where Tom meets his mistress Myrtle, Nick must decide whether to reserve judgment and participate or not. He tries to leave, but gets sucked back into the party and stays all night. In the middle build, Gatsby longs to marry his former love, Daisy, and asks Nick, through Jordan, to help him arrange a meeting. Nick agrees, and they begin to see each other, but when Tom discovers their relationship, Gatsby must decide whether to continue to pursue Daisy or walk away. Believing that Daisy always loved him, not Tom, he travels with the group to the Plaza Hotel where Daisy won't deny that she loves Tom. In the ending payoff, on the way back to the Buchanan household from the Plaza Hotel, Daisy drives Gatsby's car and hits and kills Myrtle, and Gatsby decides to take responsibility while Tom tells Myrtle's husband that it was Gatsby's car. But when Nick tries to tell Gatsby the truth about Daisy and Tom, Gatsby must decide whether to believe Nick or Daisy. He continues to trust that Daisy will return to him, waiting at his home for her to call, and Myrtle's husband arrives to shoot him before turning the gun on himself. Nick is the only one who mourns Gatsby's death. Okay, so that's the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff of the novel, and I'm calling this a worldview disillusionment global story with an obsession love story subplot. 
Now, one of the things I want to talk about is why this is considered the great American novel and why does it still resonate with us? It's a story that works by almost any critic's or editor's definition, and it's beautifully written. But we can say that about a lot of stories. Now, Americans tend to like happy endings, though, and this does not meet that standard. So I think what is what we're picking up on in this story is that it reveals a truth about this country that feels particularly resonant right now, even though it's almost 100 years after publication. Now, how does this relate to worldview disillusionment? On a certain level, everything about this story communicates status. Nick Carraway draws our attention to people's pedigrees and surnames, their homes and where they attend college, their manners, posture, accents, and clothing, all of which is relevant to point of view and narrative device, of course. But given this focus, you might conclude that this is a status tragic story for Gatsby. And you certainly could use the same events to tell the story of Gatsby's rise and fall through that lens. But in the same way that The Godfather is not a crime story, I see The Great Gatsby is not a status story. It's about disillusionment with the American dream or a kind of reckoning of accounts. So the setting or domain of the story is what sets up the primary conflict, and here it's characterized by large gaps in social class, and that gives us the primary change that happens over the course of the story, where we see two characters move from blind faith to justified belief and ultimately disillusionment. At the beginning of the story, Gatsby and Nick both have a naive, blind belief that the world and people are a certain way. Gatsby believes that if he works hard enough and amasses enough wealth, he can win Daisy because she truly loves him. Nick is inclined to think well of people, but by the end of the story, they both come to believe a darker truth that the other characters around them already understand and have metabolized in their own ways. So interestingly enough, many are not discouraged, even though there is this disillusionment with the American dream. So like the proof of love scene in a love story, people make the sacrifice without the promise that will do them any good. And this is particularly instructive for writers because we invest time, energy, and work to write a great story without knowing whether anyone will read and enjoy it. Results, of course, are not guaranteed, which is why in the Story Grid universe, we focus on the work and the process. So that's all of that relationship between disillusionment and status. And I want to just quickly point out a difference between maturation and disillusionment. Both protagonists discover that the way they viewed the world is wrong, but the maturation protagonist grows as a result of their new worldview because they're able to metabolize it, possibly because they have a mentor who helps them see the truth in time. 
Okay. So as I said, I am studying point of view and narrative device. That is the subject of the third editor of the editor's six core questions. If genre is what your story is about, then point of view and narrative device are how you deliver that story to your reader. Now, point of view tells you whether your story is written in first or third person, for example, and whether it's written in the past or present tense. But the narrative device or situation tells you who is telling the story, to whom, when, and where, in what form, and why. So, of course, you are the writer and you write the story for your reader, but it's so useful to consider the narrative device or situation, whether you reveal this to your reader or not, because these decisions create constraints that help you solve problems and make choices for your story. A specific narrative device or situation makes your life easier because it creates a specific purpose for the communication. When you know who's speaking to whom and why, you have a lot of valuable information. So this season specifically, I'm looking at the effects that we can create with our point of view choices. And I'll include links to my bite-sized episode on point of view, as well as my articles. I begin my analysis of point of view by looking at the opportunity presented by the premise. Now, in previous episodes, I've talked about the problem presented by the premise and other story elements. As an editor, I focus on diagnosing and solving problems. So this is kind of a natural approach. But I also help writers fulfill the promise of their story ideas. And being able to see both the promise and the challenges are valuable viewpoints. So thanks to a conversation with fellow StoryGrid editor, Mark McGinn, I'm reframing my inquiry as the opportunity now because I wanna help writers focus on the possibilities in their stories. So the premise here is that Jay Gatsby is an ambitious young man in the early 1920s New York City who wants to reconnect with and marry a former love who is from an entirely different social class and who is married to someone of her class. The global genre, as I said, is disillusionment. So we're seeing the protagonist, and of course in this story, the narrator as well, come to realize that what they believed about people and their environment isn't true. So because the protagonist must realize a dark truth, we'll want a narrative device that allows different subjective perspectives on the same objective facts. So we also need a narrator who can navigate different levels of society and who is open-minded enough to withhold judgment. So let's look at how F. Scott Fitzgerald leveraged the opportunities within this setup. What's the point of view? Here, it's first person, what Norman Friedman calls I as witness. So Nick acts as an observer of the events, even though he's also a participant. Now, what I especially like about this example of first person narration is that 
it has the feel of an omniscient narrator and it shows the range of this point of view choice. I think it's the rich details that Nick shares that makes this possible. He notices the way the other characters appear and what they say and do that reveal things they might not realize. And in this way, it's almost as if he can read their minds. So that's the point of view. What's the narrative device? Who's telling the story? Nick Carraway, of course. To whom is he telling the story? Well, the film shows that Nick is writing as part of his treatment or recovery, but the novel doesn't reveal his specific audience or purpose. I suspect it's very similar, or if it is for someone else, that it is for someone like him, a young man of that class who needs to learn a dark truth, and it would be better for them to get the, get the information secondhand. In what form? Nick explicitly refers to the written form, both in the film and in the novel. And to me, as a metaphor, it feels like the reckoning of accounts. Where and when is this story being told? Nick tells us that he's writing two years after Jay Gatsby's death. He's gained some perspective, in other words, and as a result, he appears as two different characters. He's the character who participates in the events, and he is the narrator with two years' perspective who knows how it all turns out. Now, because Nick tells us how things turn out in the opening of the novel and the film, Fitzgerald is employing dramatic irony as the primary form of narrative drive. And in this form, we read on not to find out what happens, but to learn how it happens and because of our concern for the characters. This is a great choice for a story with a negative ending because a satisfying ending is, of course, surprising but inevitable. If you surprise your reader with a negative ending that they're not expecting, that's not inevitable from the start, you really risk alienating them. So why is the story being told? I've found that the narrator's purpose is often tied to the controlling idea or theme. Here, I've identified the controlling idea this way. We succumb to disillusionment when we learn a shocking, dark truth that we cannot yet metabolize. So this seems to be the result of Nick's inquiry, as he and Gatsby don't realize the truth in time and neither possesses the ability to metabolize it. So how well does this work? How well do the point of view and narrative device choices leverage the opportunity presented by the premise and the other elements of the story? Of course, it's kind of hard to imagine the great Gatsby told any other way. But just as Gatsby finds with Daisy, he may not be his own best spokesperson to present his case to a reader. Nick makes the case for him, and we immediately attach to Nick 
because he's quickly established that he's a good guy with good intentions and with an open mind. So even though his view of the world is not accurate, as he fully admits, we accept his moral judgment on the situation in part because he owns this truth. So in a way, Fitzgerald uses to great effect the need to telegraph a negative ending and use dramatic irony. Okay, so that's my take on point of view and narrative device for The Great Gatsby. Valerie, you're going to talk about the middle build in two parts. What do you have for us? Well, this week I'm continuing my study, as you said, of the middle build of a story. And those of you who've been around StoryGrid Universe for a while have heard us talking about the 15 core scenes of the story spine. Getting those right is vital to the success of your story. However, a lot of writers get lost in the middle build because, I mean, it is half the story and there's a whole lot of ground to cover between the inciting incident of Act 2 and the turning point. So recently in Action Story, the primal genre, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, Sean outlined a way to break that huge middle build down into two parts. Following this method, there will be 20 core scenes rather than 15. Now, of course, the 15 core scenes method is still valid. And if you're using StoryGrid as a planning tool, Personally, I think it's best to start with the 15 core scenes and then add the five remaining scenes when you have a better handle on what your story will be. Why do I say that? Well, it's because when we're planning, we don't even know what the details are, right? So it makes a lot of sense to start at the highest level possible, the most macro view, and gradually become more micro. So the beginning hook is the protagonist's ordinary world, and the ending payoff is the protagonist's new and improved version of himself. What we want to examine then is what happens during that middle build to arc the character. How does our hero change from the person he used to be to the person he becomes? Well, the middle build is the extraordinary world. It's an unknown environment for the protagonist. So he's essentially a fish out of water. He doesn't know who anyone is or how anything works. By contrast, the antagonist is right at home. He knows how everything works and he has the home court advantage, obviously. This is why we say that the middle build belongs to the antagonist. He knows stuff the protagonist doesn't know. He's got the upper hand. So when we break the middle bill down into two parts, we call the first part middle bill one and the second part middle bill two. It's really advanced stuff here. <laughs> All right, so what's middle bill one? Well, this is the calm before the storm. The protagonist is trying to navigate this strange new world the best way he can. He has the knowledge, the skills, the tools, the beliefs, and the perspectives that he brought with him from his ordinary world. Little by little, he discovers that those things don't work here in this extraordinary world. And as a result, the situation that he finds himself in is getting more and more complicated and it's getting worse. The tension builds until the story hits the midpoint climax, which is also called the midpoint shift or the point of no return. As you'd expect, 
This part of the story contains the five commandments of storytelling. So what's the inciting incident in this section? Here, the protagonist is taken into the extraordinary world by a threshold guardian, and it's clear that this is a whole new world. The hero approaches this alien environment as though he were in his ordinary world, because that's the only frame of reference he has, right? And naturally, it doesn't work. In Gatsby, this is when Tom brings Nick into into, uh, New York to a party with Myrtle and the others. Nick doesn't want to be there. He'd previously been drunk only once in his whole life, and he politely refuses to stay and party with them. He says that Daisy is his cousin and that he doesn't feel comfortable, but soon enough, he comes around. Now, just a side note here, my breakdown is slightly different than Leslie's, and that could be simply due to the fact that Leslie was focusing on the novel and I really focused on the film, Um, but really it's splitting hairs. So what's the turning point progressive complication of this middle build one? Well, this is when the protagonist has to try and outmaneuver the antagonist. And whether he's successful or not, the antagonist gets a glimpse of the protagonist's gift. This is the point in the story when Gatsby wants Nick to invite Daisy for tea. It seems like a fairly simple request, but it isn't. And almost instinctively, Nick knows it, which is why this request gives rise to a crisis. We're used to seeing the villain wanting to destroy the hero. I mean, that was certainly the case with Baby Driver, and and it's certainly the case in thrillers and so on. But in this story, Gatsby does not want to destroy Nick. He wants to use him. He wants to manipulate him into doing his bidding. He's very good at it, too. Gatsby tries to corrupt Nick with the offer of a side job. And when Nick refuses, stating that this is simply a favor and he's happy to do it, he reveals his gift. His gift is being a nice guy. And Leslie talked about that a minute ago. Of course, this ties into the point of view because Nick is our narrator. So, of course, he's going to speak very highly of himself. When the antagonist glimpses the protagonist's gift, something really interesting happens. Keep in mind that the villain is the hero of his own story. So just like the protagonist of the global story, he's constantly evaluating those around him to determine who his allies are and who his enemies are. In this scene, this is outside Nick's uh, cottage, outside his bungalow, Gatsby is evaluating Nick. He's testing him to see if Nick is a threat that must be destroyed or if he can be manipulated. The offer of the side job is a test to see what Nick is really made of. Gatsby sees this nice guy gift and decides that he can use it to his advantage. And of course, that's exactly what it does for the whole rest of the film. The crisis of Middle Build 1, obviously this is the question that arises as a result of the turning point. Will the hero comply with the villain's request or defy it. Now, as I said, the antagonist is evaluating the protagonist to see if he's a friend or foe. So the way the protagonist answers this crisis question is pivotal to the story. We often see the hero defy the villain. I mean, that's what we would naturally expect here. That gives them and us a gauge for how formidable the clash between these two characters will be. It sets up the core event of the story. 
Now in Gatsby, we see Nick complying with his antagonist. He does invite Daisy for tea. This also sets up the core event and ultimately leads to Nick's disillusionment, but in a way that gives Nick a false sense of security. Nick seems blissfully unaware that he's being manipulated. The climax then, this is when the antagonist asserts his power. Now, if you remember from last week in Baby Driver, this is when Bats shoots up the market when they're going to buy these guns from corrupt cops. It's totally over the top, right? I mean, (laughs) there's grenades and everything. You can't miss it. Does Gatsby do anything like this? Well, actually he does. I mean, there's no grenades, but he has a totally over the top reaction. When they decide that when Nick decides that he's going to invite Daisy for tea, what does Gatsby do? He redecorates Nick's cottage inside and out. It is a massive display of Gatsby's wealth and power. He can get people to do his bidding and he can make things happen fast. Now, Whereas Baby became very cautious around bats and only spoke up when Deborah was threatened, Nick puts up no resistance whatsoever. In fact, when Gatsby has a moment of hesitation, Nick steps in to help. He's Gatsby's friend, right? He's a nice guy. He's going to help Gatsby speak to Daisy. And the resolution of Middle Build 1, I think it's really long. It's the whole montage sequence. Uh, of Gatsby, Daisy, and Nick frolicking in the summer sun. And it ends as expected with the midpoint shift, which is when Nick realizes that Gatsby wants more than an above the board reconnection with someone he once knew. So this midpoint shift, as I mentioned a minute ago, is also called the midpoint climax or the point of no return. And it marks the heroes fall into chaos Notice that Gatsby ropes Nick in to his plan early and keeps him involved until the bitter end. Whenever Gatsby wants to spend time with Daisy, he invites Nick along too. Now, part of this is the social convention. Part of it is a cover story because Tom thinks Daisy is simply spending some time with her cousin. But mostly, and this is important from a storytelling point of view, this is the antagonist's way of making sure that the protagonist is in it up to his neck. Nick is culpable. All right, now we're moving into Middle Build 2. If Middle Build 1 is the calm before the storm, then Middle Build 2 is the storm. Like all hell is breaking loose, it is chaos. The protagonist has no idea what to do and is pretty much making it up as he goes along. When the protagonist is disoriented, everybody is disoriented. When the protagonist falls into chaos, everybody falls into chaos. So as with the first part of the middle build, the second part of the middle build also has the five commandments of storytelling. So let's have a look at those now. So as I said a minute ago, the switch between MB1 and MB2 happens at this midpoint shift when Nick realizes that Gatsby wants more. Here in the inciting incident of Middle Bill 2 or MB2, we get an event that is unexpected by both the protagonist and the antagonist, and it requires them both to respond to that event in ways that counterbalance one another. This, This stuff gets really interesting. 
The inciting incident, as far as I'm concerned, of this middle bill too, is when Nick discovers that Daisy and Gatsby want to want to run away together. Gatsby is trying to convince Daisy to tell Tom that she never loved him. Daisy resists because although she wants to be with Gatsby, she doesn't want to actually go through the process of leaving her husband. It's like she wants to magically blink and have the whole sordid affair resolved in a way that doesn't hurt anyone and doesn't shame her publicly. Well, nice try, honey. (laughs) Nick never expected that his agreement to invite Daisy to tea would lead to this. And Gatsby never expected that Daisy would refuse to leave Tom. The turning point of the middle bill too, <laughs> it feels sometimes like it takes a really long time to get here. But if, if we as writers do our jobs right, then when we finally do get here, it's really delicious. So this is when the protagonist begins to see the extraordinary world for what it really is. Nick Carraway had been dazzled by the wealth and the carefree party lifestyle on Long Island. But now, well, and in New York for that matter, but now he's noticing the reality of what this lifestyle is. So they're partying in the country, they're partying in the city, and at first it seems just like a good time, but here in the turning point of Middle Bill 2, his eyes are opening and he's seeing the reality of the world he has landed in. And as a result, he begins to behave in ways that are counter to his pre-programmed behavior or the way he acted in his ordinary world. So we're starting to see his, his actions change. Remember, he entered the extraordinary world armed only with the skills and knowledge he had in the ordinary world. He came in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, right? He was a nice guy. Now the disillusionment is starting to set in. He's getting jaded in his old age. (laughs) He's 30 after all. When Gatsby says that Daisy wants him and Jordan Baker over to lunch, Nick is unimpressed. This is the lunch when Daisy will finally tell Tom in front of everybody that she never loved him and that she wants to run away to be with Gatsby. And keep in mind that Daisy also has a little girl. She's in the periphery somewhere. So she's going to leave everybody to be with Gatsby. So whereas Nick accepted the original invite to dinner with Daisy with a joyful buoyancy, he's now filled with dread. And this invitation leads to their trip into the city, which is when the global crisis happens. And Leslie mentioned this in her opening. So the crisis of Middle Bill 2 is the crisis of the whole story. It's the global crisis. And here it's mostly Daisy's crisis rather than Nick's. The entire scene in the city here is about whether Daisy will finally leave Tom or not. But that said, Nick is obviously implicated here. After all, he's the one who made it possible for them to meet in the first place. For Nick, there is the question of whether he'll intervene in the argument that's unfolding between Gatsby, Daisy, and Tom, or whether he'll stay silent. Earlier in the story, he'd chosen to get involved. Now, he chooses to stay out of it. The nice guy is starting to disappear. He sort of looks at them and says, you made your bed, now go lie in it. 
The climax of Middle Bill 2, well, this is when Myrtle is killed and Tom denies knowing her. He allows all the blame to be placed on Gatsby. And of course, the irony here is that where Myrtle is concerned, Gatsby's actually innocent. He's guilty of a bunch of other stuff, but nothing, not guilty in any of the things to do with poor old Myrtle. Finally, we get to the resolution of Middle Bill 2 before we jump into the ending payoff. And here, this is when we have the protagonist preparing to fight the antagonist. He's the, our, our hero has climbed out of chaos. He has seized the sword of the hero's journey, and he's preparing for battle. Often these scenes are banquet scenes or dinner scenes, or the hero is saying goodbye to people around him. Nick's approach is to walk away from everybody. He sees the extraordinary world and the people in it, finally, for what and who they are, and has decided that he wants none of it. He won't even wait inside Daisy's house for the cab. Okay, so that's a whole lot of information I've just thrown at you, and it's a lot to take in. I know that. But what I find most interesting here is that even though Sean articulated these 10 scenes specifically for the action genre, what we can do as students of story is extrapolate them and apply them to other genres. It's also interesting to see how the story unfolds when the protagonist decides to go along with the antagonist rather than try to combat him. Thanks, Valerie. I love seeing how you're breaking those scenes into or the huge middle build into smaller pieces so we can see how they fit together. That's really useful. So now to break this down into an even smaller piece, Kim, you're going to cover the core event for worldview disillusionment. What do you have for us on The Great Gatsby? So this week's story was a really sad one, uh, for sure. It was really heartbreaking. Um, I was telling my husband about it. Um, he's always he always asks, so what's the film? What are you doing? What do you got what you need? And I told him the story and was explaining all the details. And he was like, That's the saddest movie, and I've never even watched it. So he anyway, he agreed that it was really sad. Um, anyway, I think disillusionment stories must just must be like that. So this season, I am studying core events to better understand how to execute that big payoff of a story, which will in turn help me better understand how to begin a story with intention and, of course, all the important steps to make along the way. The entirety of a story will make the most sense in the context of its core event. This is the core moment of change in global life values. It is where the height of the core emotion is evoked and the reader's expectations are paid off. All roads lead to the core event. So The Great Gatsby is a global worldview disillusionment story, and here are some quotes from Sean um, about this genre from the StoryGrid book. So he says, Remember that the disillusionment plot is a movement from a positive belief in the order of the universe, basic fairness, etc., to a darker point of view, one that recognizes the murkiness of life, the real injustice and mendacity that plagues us all. He also says, the disillusioned come to the conclusion that there is no treasure at the end of the hard work rainbow because there really isn't any rainbow to begin with. What we think we want and how we think we can get there is never what it really turns out to be. 
And then he also says, the value at stake in the disillusionment plot is the lead character's worldview. Generally, the progression of negativity of the worldview value moves from illusion to confusion to disillusion to the negation of the negation, dysthemia, which is a chronic state of negative or negativity or depression. So then he goes on to tell us in Silence of the Lambs um, that he adjusted the life values here a bit to actually be blind belief to justified belief to doubt to disillusionment. And I think that this in itself is a really valuable lesson. You can customize your life values to make them more clear and relevant to your story. So you have permission. Okay, so for The Great Gatsby, though, allusion to confusion to disillusion really makes a lot of sense to me. And in the film version, at least, Nick seems to fall to this dysthemia, which is why he ends up in the sanatorium and eventually writing the book. So we see him at the negation of the negation, and then we jump back to the beginning um, two years prior where he views the people around him through an illusion of goodwill. So let's look at the core event um, for when the life values ultimately shift from confusion to disillusionment. In the film version, the core event moment of Nick's disillusionment seems to come when Nick phones Daisy to tell her Gatsby's funeral is tomorrow. Despite everything that has happened, he still believes that they are decent, that Daisy loves Gatsby, and that they will do the right thing. But then he's told by the butler that they have left town. And then Nick says, please, I know that she would want to be there. If you would just get a message to her, let me talk to her, please, please. So note that he says please three times. But, of course, he is given no further information. They've left no address or way to be contacted. They're just gone without a word, without acknowledging the man who loved her, who was killed because he protected her. Gatsby was blamed for the affair with Myrtle and her death, and now the two people who know the truth couldn't be bothered to pay their respects at his funeral. This active dismissal prompts Nick to have a revelation about their character. And there is voiceover um, at this point in the film, which is actually a real line from the novel. It's just kind of shifted around where it takes place. But here's, here's the line. It says, they were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money and their vast carelessness. So then immediately after this, we see Nick lose his temper for the first time. He yells at the reporters in the house who are taking pictures of Gatsby in the casket. And he just, he straight up yells. He's like, you know, hey, go on, get out of here. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> there are no pleases. There's no, no good manners. It's just get the hell out of here. And the expression on his face in the scene is really similar to Gatsby's expression earlier, um, uh, you know, with Tom when Tom had, had insulted his origins, and it's one that Nick referred to as though Gatsby had killed a man. So we see Nick reach this place of just, he's totally fed up with, with the people around him. So then his disillusionment is compounded in the resolution of that scene. And the voiceover says, I rang, I wrote, I implored, but not a single one of the sparkling hundreds that had enjoyed his hospitality attended the funeral. And from Daisy, not even a flower. I was all he had, the only one who cared. Now, if you contrast this with the opening voiceover, 
which is, in my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice. Always try to see the best in people, he would say. As a consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, but even I have a limit. So now, throughout the story, there's this undercurrent that we're waiting to see when Nick Carraway is at his limit, right? Where he can no longer reserve his judgment and he's filled with the disgust for the actions of others. And in this moment, it feels to me that the promise made in the beginning has been fulfilled. Um, now, this moment in the film is really clear and defining. In the novel, the core event is executed a bit differently, but it still feels to me like it's related to no one attending Gatsby's funeral. And I went ahead and I put the um, the text in the show notes of this scene um, and, and kind of how it plays out to me. And so you can take a look at that. And I encourage you, as always, to check out the show notes. There's always good stuff there. So it really comes down to being at the cemetery and there is one other person who does show up to the cemetery and together they both remark um, the, how, how awful it is that none of the hundreds of people have, have shown up. And I would also like to say that this moment in the story, it's kind of a – it feels like a core event in a way for the love obsession story. It's it's kind of like a failed proof of love scene from Daisy. So she was unable to commit to Gatsby in life and now she won't even honor him in death. And it just – it stood out to me that, you know, his – that Nick's disillusionment about her is really showing that she, she really f- failed in her proof of love. Okay, so this core event moment, you know, it feels like that proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. It's as if Nick, like Gatsby, is holding out hope that people will prove themselves to be decent and respectable only to be proved false, leaving him disillusioned about people, New York, the East, etc. So the core emotion of a worldview story that ends negative, so disillusionment and then some revelation stories, is loss and pity. All change comes with loss, and disillusionment is one of those times when that is all that it really feels like because, as Leslie mentioned er earlier, unlike maturation, the protagonist doesn't move through this loss into better-suited goals. They stay mired in that loss. In the novel, there is a line, I think, that shows Nick's pity for Tom, which was was interesting to me, um, and I wanted to point it out here. So it says, I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was, to him, entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused, um, which is interesting to look at those words in life value terms. And then this is where that original line comes in. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures, then retreated back into their money and their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. So again, I just thought that was another excellent little segment that feels like it showcases Nick getting to this place of disillusionment and then just pity for people that just can't, that are that they, they aren't who they present themselves to be and who he thought they were. So the last thing I want to mention um, just briefly is, so while Gatsby may be the main character who the story is about, we experience the fullness of the disillusionment arc through the point of view character Nick after Gatsby's be- after Gatsby's death. Um, and so because Gatsby isn't there to finish out the novel, it really makes so much sense why 
um, F. Scott Fitzgerald picked Nick and his point of view narrative device so that we can actually experience the fullness of this disillusionment plot. So it's just fascinating to see how these different pieces um, of craft, you know, um, the genre, the point of view, narrative device, all of these things are, are, are at play together to make the story the best that it can be. Excellent. Thank you for going through that. Well, we like to round out our discussion with a few takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. So what have we learned this week? Let's hear from Valerie. My key takeaway this week is that the protagonist doesn't always have to actively combat the antagonist. The hero can choose to go along with the villain. It's not an easy thing to pull off. <laughs> don't get me wrong. And it, I don't think it will work for every genre. But it is an interesting artistic choice, especially for a worldview disillusionment plot. So something I want writers to remember is that whenever you have a global internal genre, it's important to shift your thinking to external concrete specifics that you can use to demonstrate the life value shifts, especially in the core event. We want to ensure that the reader feels that core emotion, which likely means they need more than just what's going on inside the character's head. And I want to say revisit the classics. And I know that I sound like my 10th grade English teacher as I say that. But even if you read The Great Gatsby in high school and you weren't crazy about it then, I urge you to read it and other classics again. Much like Nick, you're a different person than you were then, and you'll have a different perspective. There's plenty for us to learn from the way that Fitzgerald executed this story, but don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourselves and keep your story grid goggles handy. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners, and this week's question comes to us from Melanie Hill in the Story Grid Guild Forum. Melanie writes, how do the roundtable team study sequences in existing works or masterworks? How do you use or plan sequences with clients and in your own writing? Kim, what's your answer? So... I love this question, and I love that you're thinking about sequences. Um, so sequences, just for clarity, they're one of the units of story, right? They're a larger unit than a scene. So we go if we go from the largest unit, we go a global unit, then a subplot, we have an act, then a sequence, a scene, and then a beat. So a sequence is, you know, two or more scenes that together they create a unit of change. Um, they represent a larger unit of change than just a than just a scene. And so, what I love about them is that they are a way that you can you can execute your life value change. They're just another way to look at how to build a unit of story. Um, and I think, you know, whether you're trying to break down a masterwork and understand what's really making something tick, or you're trying to plan your novel or revise your own novel, looking at sequences, I think is really, really useful to kind of get the big swath changes of what's happening on your life value spectrum. So for myself, in the beginning hook, I usually like to think about it in three sequences. Um, this is usually how I will map out or plan my own novels, and I think it's something that I observe fairly well in, in other stories. So usually I find there's 
you know, if we kind of imagine that the beginning hook is going to be about 15 scenes, that's kind of the, the, what Sean gives us, you know, in a 60 scene novel, you know, it goes 15 for the beginning hook, 30 for the middle build and 15 for the ending payoff or something like that. Right. So if you set out to plan, okay, I'm going to have about 15 scenes in my beginning hook. I like to think of them in a sequence of five scenes. So the first five scenes of your novel is basically where I would set up my status quo. I would get my inciting incident in there and probably my first progressive complication in those first five scenes. Then the next five scenes are going to have more progressive complications that lead up to a turning point. And then in my final five scenes, we're going to go through the crisis, the climax, and the resolution of the beginning hook. So again, this isn't hard science, obviously, but that's just something that I have witnessed and the way that I like to try to just get my mind thinking of things. And I think it helps with pacing. um, And it helps me personally try to solve those macro to micro problems. I can say like, okay, I have five scenes to get from the beginning of the book to my inciting incident or my first progressive complication. What do I need to accomplish in this scene that moves my protagonist forward? I don't have to move them all the way forward. I just have to move them one scene's worth forward. And then I have the next scene to do the next job. So I think that when you can start looking at things in sequences and understanding that I have this much room to make this change happen, you can break it down into more micro elements like scenes and beats. Um, And I just think it helps you with pacing, with problem solving, and all kinds of stuff. Um, Also, the other thing I just wanted to mention was that the thing I like about sequences is I think it works really well for plotters and pantsers. So for plotters like myself, um, we can use it as just one of the ways that we plan and then we can get down into the nitty gritty details within it. For a pantser, it's like if you can use those you know, 15 or 20 core scenes that Valerie was talking about, you can plan a sequence to get you to that next core scene. And you can say, okay, I'm going to plan what scenes do I need to get me to the next core scene? And and then, okay, now that I'm here, what scenes do I need to get me to the next core scene? And so thinking in that way, in a sequence between major events, is a way that I think you could, as a pantser, know kind of what's coming, but also give you plenty of room to discover and explore on the page. Great. Thank you, Kim. And thank you for your question, Melanie. If you have a question about sequences, masterworks, or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Kim and Valerie, for your excellent editorial insights into The Great Gatsby. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to think about incorporating point of view and narrative device in your own stories. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a review and rating and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time when Kim will look at the core event for the performance and status genres in the 2000 dance film Center Stage. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.